With the harmonizing of elements like visual effects and stirring audio, movies have perfected the formula of fear. Since the emotion of fear can't be seen, it's hard to pick up on until it's physically manifested in something like an expression or an action. Out of convenience, our minds are more likely to familiarize the concept of fear with what we've seen, like say something on a movie screen. Aside from flesh-eating zombies or inexplicable thuds coming from the basement steps, what else would you identify with fear? The truth is, real-life fear is disgustingly good at disguising itself. So good that you may not even be aware of its existence around you or even within you. Here's the real scare. It can burrow itself so deep into your psyche that it goes completely undetected, untreated, and unresolved. Fear can manifest itself in the most intimate of ways while it remains completely hidden in the shadows, laughing mercilessly as it creates a silent struggle within us. Or maybe we know what lurks in those shadows, but resist confronting it for whatever excuse we dig up that day. The late Debbie Ford said, By choosing not to allow parts of ourselves to exist, we are forced to expend huge amounts of psychic energy to keep them beneath the surface. Energy, such a precious and finite resource. How much of it have you spent turning your back on a part of yourself out of fear? You want to go into the dragon's cave and turn on the light. The dragon is a behavior. It is an energy that is developed by us, created by us, fed by us as a strategic, adaptive response to uh, some trauma in life. When you disown your dragon, you feed it, nurturing and strengthening it into a massive life-sucking entity. I grew up scared, scared of everything. My fear started when I was a young boy from massive pain. My mom was shocked when I explained the doctor's office perfectly in Beverly Hills. I was only two years old when we went there. Massive pain will etch experiences like this in our psyche. This day was a day that the doctor was to lance a hole in my eardrum to release pressure. Let me tell you, it hurt very badly. I remember kicking and screaming, thrusting the doctor off of me, scared to death. Sitting with my mom on her deck in Northern California at a nudist colony of all places, probably around 35 years old, I shared with her the exact look and feel of the exam room, the items in it, even the drapes. Having major ear infections as a young boy and tubes placed in my ears, I knew pain from a very young age. It's taken me many years to find and face that dragon and ultimately own it. I now use the fear and pain to help others through their own. How much happiness have you sacrificed to feed your dragon? Has it bullied you enough to miss out on fulfilling your mission on this planet or financial gain as an entrepreneur? Has it beaten you into silent submission that's prevented you from speaking your ideas, thoughts, and opinions? Or has it blocked you from fully experiencing deep, intimate love? What about the fear of uncertainty or absence of assurance, things that are hidden in the shadows? How has anxiety crippled your courage? I love the way Isaac Lidsky puts fear into perspective for us during his TED Talk, What Reality Are You Creating for Yourself? Your fears distort your reality. Under the warped logic of fear, anything is better than the uncertain. Fear fills the void at all costs, passing off what you dread for what you know, offering up the worst in place of the ambiguous, substituting assumption for reason. Psychologists have a great term for it, uh, awfulizing. Has fear awfulized the unknown so intensely that you rely on unhealthy crutches like drugs or alcohol as a way to distort your reality? Really, check in right now. Really check in. 
If you took a mental inventory of how much of your time, energy, love, money, or opportunities have withered away, you start to realize how expensive it is to keep fear around. There isn't one being on this planet that can afford it as an everyday sidekick. Its sole sponsor is life in one way or another. A little time here, a little energy there, the fees start to stack up. And if we allow it to, it won't stop until we've given everything and too many have. Are you with me? The American Foundation for Suicide Prevention's website reports suicide as the 10th leading cause of death in the U.S. 2015 suicide rates skyrocketed to 13.26% compared to 12.93% in 2014. Oftentimes, those who take their own lives were experiencing some brand of physical or psychological dilemma. They view suicide as their only solution for relief. I don't have very much time these days, so I'll make it quick, like my life. You know, as we come to the end of this phase of our life, we find ourselves trying to remember the good times and trying to forget the bad times. And we find ourselves thinking about the future. We start to worry, thinking, what am I going to do? Where am I going to be in 10 years? But I say to you, hey, Look at me. Please, don't worry so much. Because in the end, none of us have very long on this earth. Life is fleeting. And if you're ever distressed, cast your eyes to the summer sky when the stars are strung across the velvety night. When a shooting star streaks through the blackness, turning night into day, make a wish. Think of me. Make your life spectacular. You are out of your mind! Bingo! I know I did. Come on, Jack! Free up the little guy! Let him flap in the breeze! Robin Williams was a leading light in the entertainment world as both actor and comedian. Many who live a lifestyle similar to what he did are no strangers to drug indulgence. Robin was no exception. His struggle with alcohol and cocaine addiction wasn't something he tried to shield from the public eye and would often use it in his material for his stand-up routines. In a 2010 interview with The Guardian, Robin spoke on his 2003 relapse after his 20-year sobriety stretch. He had been on location in Alaska and found himself alone and afraid, and he found company in an old pal and started drinking again to help him cope with the fear of being alone. This quote from Robin himself, It's just literally being afraid, and you think, oh, this will ease the fear, and it doesn't. When he asked what he was afraid of, he responded, Everything. It's just a general all-around arg. It's fearfulness and anxiety. Recent studies show a probable connection between long-term cocaine use and Parkinson's disease, which Robin was diagnosed with in 2013. From the outside, you couldn't see fear through his infectious energy and humorous on-screen characters. Inside, it dissolved him until there was nothing left. On August 11, 2014, he took his own life. 
In an editorial published by Neurology.org, the actor's wife, Susan Schneider-Williams, discussed the pathology of Robin's brain. She revealed that all four doctors who reviewed his records agreed it was one of the worst pathologies they'd ever seen. Robin had lost 40% of his dopamine neurons and almost no neurons were without Lewy bodies affecting the entire brain and brain stem. Lewy bodies are abnormal aggregates of protein that develop inside nerve cells in Parkinson's disease and some other disorders. Lewy bodies can affect chemicals in the brain and can lead to problems with thinking, movement, behavior, and mood. The article was appropriately titled, The Terrorist Inside My Husband's Brain. A study performed by St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital gives further insight into the effects of cocaine on the brain. Regular cocaine abuse can interfere with dopamine transporters, causing a chemical reaction that leads to damaged brain tissue. Now, having experienced depression myself on and off for many years, and having gone down the rabbit hole of chasing the dragon many times with drugs, alcohol, action sports, wherever I could get my rocks off and escape, I can attest to the challenge of having low serotonin, dopamine, and other biochemicals. The irony is this. It wasn't until I played around with MDMA, or its street name, Ecstasy, that I was able to dig myself out of it. Developed in Germany in the early 1900s, it wasn't until the 1970s in the United States that some psychiatrists began using MDMA as a psychotherapeutic tool, mainly to treat those diagnosed with PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. It remained legal until 1985 when the DEA banned it, placing it on the Schedule I list. In the late 2000s, the FDA approved the first small clinical trial for MDMA use. In 2011, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies conducted a study on a group diagnosed with PTSD to test the efficacy of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. The British Journal of Psychiatry reported 85% of the participants in the placebo-controlled study no longer had a diagnosis after three sessions. The reason I'm diving so deeply into this topic is this. As we open up to the idea that we have many stories around some things, in this case drugs, we close off to the potential positive benefits of them. By no means am I an advocate for major drug use. I am more an advocate for exploring our dragon from all means possible, all sides, all possibilities. Everything on the planet is a teacher if used correctly and not abused. So it's the abuse of anything that creates problems, addictions, and strife. Do you agree? Your dragon is the gateway to your healing and everything you've ever wanted in your life. And most importantly, if you don't make friends with your dragon, it will always find a means to haunt you. So be courageous and unorthodox in finding, facing, and riding your dragon. Welcome to the Face Your Dragon podcast, where we help you, a messenger with a mission, leverage your fear to amplify your voice in the world. On the show, we open up the concept that what you are most afraid of and most resisting are the very things that will set you free. With courage, with clarity, with contribution, you can have it all. This show will engage in deep, enriching conversation with thought leaders, best-selling authors, celebrities, athletes, icons, and regular Joes who have faced their fear and are now using it to create impact in the world. I'm Brad Axelrad, and I'll be your host. The things we fear the most have already happened to us. Fears are our traveling companions from early childhood walking beside us, growing with us. Because of this, their presence is hard to detect. I'll liken it to wearing a pair of comfortable sunglasses. You wouldn't hit a guy with glasses on, would you? The bridge of your nose carries most of their weight, and they're unmistakably close to your eyes, making them continuously visible. 
Yet most regular wearers don't remember they even have them on or until something like dirty lenses or going to bed makes them aware enough to take them off. Point being, it's hard to notice something when it's always there, even when it's literally right in front of your face. What things would you start to become more attentive to if you really paid attention? Carl Jung said, And if such a person wants to be cured, it is necessary to find a way in which his conscious personality and his shadow can live together. Notice how he referred to shadow as something independent from consciousness. Becoming aware of the shadow is the first step in trying to understand it. Barnett Bain, it only becomes understood and then we no longer have to fear it, but it doesn't necessarily have to lose all its energy. It can still live there. We just understand it and it lives in the corner and doesn't drive us. Once the shadow is understood, the energy in the darkness can be used in a positive way. Where's all the paint? You don't need it anymore. This is your world now. <laughs> Thought is real. Physical is the illusion. Ironic, huh? This from one of my all-time favorite movies, What Dreams May Come. Chris Nielsen, played by Robin Williams, accepts that he is in heaven in this scene. He is no longer resisting what is and faces his dragon. It is in this very moment that he awakens to what's possible, but only through resistance, submission, and then ultimately surrender. Most of us take the same path. Do you? I sure as heck do. My dear friend and brother, Barnett Bain is a man with no shortage of accomplishments under his belt and beams his bright light like very few people on the planet do. Over the last six years, we've had the honor of playing in the same transformational circles. He's one of the sweetest, most gifted, and intelligent humans I've ever met, truly lives in his zone of genius. If his name doesn't strike a chord just yet, maybe mentioning his achievements will. He's produced the Oscar-winning film What Dreams May Come with the late Robin Williams and many others. He's the author of The Book of Doing and Being and blogs for the Huffington Post and co-hosted the show Cutting Edge Consciousness Radio for years, interviewing some of the biggest luminaries on the planet. His most recent movie release is an adaptation of Eckhart Tolle's children's book called Milton's Secret, a brilliant story about bullying, parenting, and the struggles we all deal with in family dynamics. It moved me to tears and opened up a perspective that is all around us and oftentimes overlooked. The acting by celebrity actors Donald Sutherland and Michelle Rodriguez really drove the message home. Barnett is a member of the Transformational Leadership Council and a member of the Association of Transformational Leaders alongside me and many other huge-hearted folks committed to expansion on this planet. Listen in as he shares from only a place Barnett can, pure brilliance. Barnett, how are you today, buddy? It's great to have you, man. So good, man. It's always good to be with you. <laughs> Thanks, man. I'm truly honored to have you on the show. I know you're doing some neat stuff out in the world. And, you know, I just want to share with the audience, you know, one of my favorite movies is What Dreams May Come and with Robin Williams. From what year was that, Barnett? 99, 98, 90, 99. 98, 99. And clearly... Didn't know you were that old, buddy. <laughs> clearly ahead of its time and uh, one of my favorite movies. I mean, can you just share for a minute what your experience was in filming that movie with the late Robin Williams and kind of what you learned from it? Wow. How much time do you have, you know, to spend time with Robin Williams? Um, Robin is big, big heart. He's certainly well known for 
being a comic genius, and he's well known for being a big-hearted guy, but to spend the better part of a year up close with a heart that big, yeah, that'll change him. Well, it really is about the heart, isn't it? I mean, all the work that we're doing in the world is... It's all about the heart. It is, isn't it? all about the heart. Because there is a point at which the intellect tops out. You know, we are so conditioned and trained by the culture to value the intellect above all else. We're trained to believe that with the right amount of data sets, I can outthink reality. I can respond to the challenges of life from a cognitive place with the right amount of data. And that is both a a beautiful worldview and an adolescent worldview. When I say adolescent, I don't mean to in any way cast aspersions on younger folks, but developmentally, adolescence is a time of personal growth wherein it is normal and appropriate to view every challenge in life from the perspective of absolutes and guarantees. Things are black, things are white. We want insurances, we want guarantees, and we believe that such is possibly the case, that that is even possibility in life. Right. Unfortunately, most of us cling to that cradle to grave. Well, it's really out of fear, isn't it? You know, we've got all these, the fear of the unknown, the fear of uncertainty, the fear of doing it wrong or sort of being found out as an imposter fraud. That's one of the dragons we talk about here on the Face Your Dragon. So where does fear come into all of that sort of overpowering intellect? How does that work? Well, uh, fear doesn't so much overpower intellect. Fear is what drives us into a love affair with intellect. We have a love affair with the straight line, with processing through the intellect because we are fearful. We are fearful of life. We learn this fear response very, very early. We come into the world attached and connected to essence, connected to core. And uh, as very young people, as little children, as babies, we do not have the faculties or the abilities to meet what life brings us from a core place. For example, Imagine yourself as a newborn and you're being held by your mother. I'm not saying this is a good mother or a bad mother, but even the best, best mother influence in the world cannot meet fully the needs of another human being or a child. So imagine you're being held by your mother and she's talking to a sibling or to your father or she's on the phone or she has something else to attend to. Now, suddenly you connected to your essence you feel an abandonment energy. You can feel energetically that she is not attuned to you. Right. So immediately we are pitched into crisis. And if anyone doubts that for a newborn infant that a lack of attunement from his mother is experienced as a crisis, you know, you're free to doubt it. I can't point to any evidence to suggest otherwise, but just go with me for a second and assume that that is possibly the case. So we um, shuttle out of our body for safety. Right. We shuttle up into the head, which as a newborn infant is not fully developed yet, but we evacuate the body because it is so disturbing to feel a disruption of the attunement of the mother, the only safety we've ever known in the womb. So we evacuate, we try and disincarnate. 
we go to a place that is not fully formed yet. And it takes, you know, a certain time after birth. I don't know whether it's 18 months or two years. I've heard different calendars from different research that suggest when that prefrontal cortex, when that executive brain fully comes online. And by the time it does fully come online, we are very, very habituated and experienced in shuttling out of the body and up into the head where we begin to make decisions about life that are based out of cognition. My mother is not there for me, and so fill in the blank. The I'm not being fed, my diaper is wet, and so fill in the blank. It's just so primal, Barnett. There's so many automaticities that are happening neurologically, biochemically. You know, it's the fight, flight, or well, freeze. that part is not conscious. When we begin to make it conscious, we make it conscious cognitively. And as a child, we make it about us. Right. So when we feel either inundated by somebody else's energy or distanced or the lack of or an abandonment by whatever the degree is, we story it. That is how stories are born. We story it in terms of logic and reason, which is the um, domain of the cognition. And we make a story about us. I'm not good enough or I'm too good or I'm a bad person or I'm undeserving or I'm flawed or nobody understands me. So there is some core decision that is made, and we spend a lifetime trying to, uh, with an aversion to that core story. Everybody has their own version of it. Right. We have a lifetime of fear of defenses built around avoidance of that feeling. Well, the topic that's really obviously everywhere and certainly in your reality right now is with the Eckhart Tolle book, Milton's Secret, that you just produced into a film. And there was the bullying aspect. I'm curious how all of this plays into bullying, you know, attracting bullying in our lives, being the bully in our lives. Like, how does that play together and share a little bit about the movie as well? Well, I think, you know, we're, we're all very familiar with the outward manifestation of bullying. Everybody has a can recognize the violence of bullying when it occurs either on a school playground or in the boardroom of a Wall Street banker when somebody seeks to assert themselves over another individual we recognize that as a bullying behavior but bullying long before it uh, manifests in that dramatic outward way it uh, begins with a seeding it begins with the bullying internal self-talk that every one of us on the planet is familiar with. It begins with that thought stream of self-talk that is generally, I'm not enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not good enough, I'm not handsome enough, I'm not thin enough, I'm not American enough, I'm not white enough, I'm not black enough, I am not somehow enough, right. I'm not lovable enough, I am not dignified enough. I'm not respected enough. It begins with that self-talk. Yeah. And that self-talk uh, builds to a crescendo and eventually finds expression in some kind of adaptive behavior. I am not enough and therefore I will act out in the following way, either as a victimizer yeah. or as a victim and yeah. the full spectrum in between. So until... You know, there are all sorts of responses and very, very good ones to the challenges and the problems that we have around bullying. But until it is dealt with at the level of the 
self-talk at the level of the personal messaging that we uh, hold about ourselves and that we are constantly seeking to reinforce about ourselves or to push back against, same thing, we will not really um, resolve some of these challenges. Right. Can you share a little bit about the story without totally giving it away and Milton's secret and sort of the journey that we all went on, both the actors and their storyline, but also as a viewer of the movie? Yeah, thanks for asking. So Milton's Secret is about a young boy. It's almost kind of a spin on a coming of age story. It's a young boy of 11 years old, about to turn 12. And he lives in a world of extraordinary uncertainty. For a young boy, terrifying. His parents are facing marital and financial challenges. And so he is concerned about the future and the status of his family and of his safety and who's going to take care of him. And will they have a roof over their head? And will he have a mom and a dad? And so there's all of these issues. And he lives in a community that faces all sorts of uncertainty. On one hand, there's all sorts of brand new possibilities and new construction happening. And right next door to the new construction, there are businesses that are going under and nothing seems to be predictable. The present does not seem to be the result of the past in the way that we traditionally come to know it. So lots and lots of chaos. And the boy is seeking to handle this chaos by trying to outthink life. Mm. An impossible problem. <laughs> right. Certainly an impossible strategy for a young boy. And I hope by the end of the movie that people will contemplate whether or not it is an equally impossible strategy for adults too. Mm. So what happens to this young boy is he is blessed to encounter in the form of his grandfather who comes to visit, played by Donald Sutherland, a man who is not trying to find guarantees in life and insurances in life and absolutes in life, but a man who is training himself to respond to the challenges of life moment by moment. And so the boy sees that there are different ways to meet life. There's an entirely different way to meet life and that the way that his grandfather models is more loving, more flowing, has a greater sense of aliveness. He is more, feels more seen by his grandfather. He feels loved by his grandfather, not for what he does in the world, but for who he is. And so the boy has the a miraculous experience having a connection with another human being who is responding to life in an entirely different way. And without it being a tutorial or without it having any lessons or instructions, he just witnesses what consciousness moment to moment looks like. Mm. And no, it doesn't change the boy's life instantly and forevermore, but it gives him an insight into a whole other menu of possibilities. Well, sometimes we just need that split second of possibility or what's just available in the moment of presence and pure love. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I love to paraphrase Einstein and state that the intellect is a wonderful servant, but a horrible master. Yeah, well said. I, I didn't know that Einstein said that. So thank you for that. But yeah. uh, certainly our world does not operate that way. And there's a kind of a fail safe mechanism built into our cognitive, our mental operating system that right. says anything other than mentality, anything other than the thinking process, the cognitive process is 
dubious. Right. <laughs> and so it's a kind of tyranny that holds itself in place <laughs> without regard for the myriad, possibly infinite. My intuition says that the other intelligences available to us are infinite in number. They're just to cite a few. There's, you know, the child intelligence, the adolescent intelligence, the spiritual intelligence, there's the body intelligence, the musical intelligence, there are mathematical intelligences, there are sporting intelligences. I mean, there are all kinds of intelligences that are not cognitive. If you ask an athlete to speak about whether they can outthink the challenges of their sport through a moment at a time, you know, I live by the beach and I watch surfers and occasionally I, I'm not a very gifted surfer, but I'm out there and I know that what meets you on, on a wave, it comes faster than my ability to process analytically. Right. And so there is a different intelligence, embodied intelligence that shows up. And if I try to outthink what's going on, I'm going to be in trouble. Beautiful. So the, the surrender to what is, the, the allowing presence to guide us, to be connected to all of these multiple different variables or different frequencies of intelligence, it's amazing. And one that comes to mind, again, like I'd mentioned earlier, my favorite, one of my top, like probably three favorite movies of all time, again, is What Dreams May Come. And the love intelligence that was so present in that movie I mean, I've just never seen a love story like that depicted with all of the shadows and the pains and the anguish and the beauty and the freedom that comes from love. What I'm really getting at there is there's so many different layers and levels to all the, the light and the shadow. Can yeah. you speak to that? And, and certainly from the movie perspective, I'd love to hear your kind of take on that. You were director of that movie, right, Barnett? I was the director of Milton's Secret. I was okay. the producer of What Dreams May Come. Producer of What Dreams May Come. So how were you able to influence knowing what I just shared there from that sort of storyline and experience? Well, the story is uh, the Orpheus story. It's the story of the Orpheus character goes from the upper world and goes down into the underworld to retrieve, to attempt to retrieve his wife, Eurydice. My personal understanding of the Orpheus story is the journey from the head into the body. Mm. Orpheus lives in the upper world. That's the world of the head. Huh, interesting. Robert Williams is a head tripper in this movie. Got it. And because he's a head tripper in the movie, he is estranged from his wife. He was estranged from her uh, when she was alive in the movie. And then when she takes her own life tragically, he becomes aware of how estranged he was from her. And he attempts to go down into the underworld, meaning into his body. He attempts to start the process life, not simply through his critical analytical faculties. I've just got to share, Barnett, my whole body's in chills right now. I'm just absolutely buzzing from what you're sharing. Keep going. This is amazing. So he, the story is about a man. He doesn't deny his thoughts, but he increasingly relies less on them and uh, more on his intuitive body experience and on his heart experience. And, uh, allows himself to feel his emotions, even though they may not make sense. He allows himself to uh, have experiences, even though they may not make sense sense to the intellect. And as a result, he is able to shuttle down from the head into the heart, into the body, and reunite with 
Eurydice with his wife. And together, they are able to start a new chapter, one which does not abandon logic and reason, doesn't lose sight of logic and reason, but allows for more. So that is why I believe What Dreams May Come story is so resonant with audiences, more so now, in fact, than it was at the time it was made. Yeah, it's so, it was so ahead of its time. We've talked about that, you know, when we've met multiple times at the Association of Transformational Leaders, like how it yeah. was just the technology was ahead of its time, the storyline, the messaging. Yeah. Are we waking up some more as a culture and as humanity? I mean, what, what's going on there? Well, that's an interesting paradox, I think. <laughs> I believe, I feel that there is a relationship when one wakes up, everyone wakes up. Agreed. You know, we are not separate from the system. We're not separate from nature and we're not separate from each other. And so as I wake up and I know that I am, there is no doubt. I understand and I experience myself to be more and more attuned and to have more and more a sense of my greater reality, of my greater beingness mm. on a daily basis. So there is no question that I am waking up, and therefore there is no question that my world is waking up. That does not mean to say that everybody is waking up in the same way and in the same cadence. However, if I am able to find a tuning to a particular resonance of awakening, then that tuning also is available to others, and people are tapping into that too. Just as I am tapping into it, Others are tapping into it. That's beautiful. So what is, uh, is there a fast way for rapid awakening or rapid enlightenment? And what have, what have you found to be the uh, most effective way to wake up one or yourself, to wake up another? Um, I don't know that there are shortcuts to it, but I do experience that as I open my heart and open my mind to the possibility that there is more going on than my mind can grok. Mm. And that there are levels at which my intellect taps out. It's my intellect is really wonderful for solving certain kinds of uh, problems. And it is entirely unequipped and not designed to meet other kinds of challenges. And so as I am willing to explore and discover those boundaries and limitations, and as I develop the courage to move into areas of my life without reliance on having to have the answers or feeling having to be safe and secure before I move forward. As I develop those muscles, I allow myself to become more of a model for other people. Mm. Other people other people see that and they say, well, you know, there's nothing special about this guy. If he can do it, uh, I can do it as well. <laughs> and so we, be start, we start to become inspirations for each other. You and I have known each other for quite a few years now. You know, I've seen you in a number of different contexts and I've seen you on stage. And so I am very aware of how inspiring you are. Oh, thank you, brother. And, and also how authentic and vulnerable you are. Mm. And I believe this, I have a, not more, you know, I keep saying I believe because that is an old patterned uh, responses. What supersedes the belief is that I have direct experience of the impact that we have on each other, I don't just mean you and I, mm -hmm. but certainly that, uh, the impact that if you come to the table firing on a few more cylinders, you will have exponentially more impact on others. And people are moved by that. Sometimes they're triggered by it and they move away from it, but they are moved by it. 
Uh, it's so true. There's uh, as we illuminate the darkness or the shadows and in, in others with our light, it can be triggering both positively and negatively. That's really interesting. I've experienced yeah. that a lot. One thing that came to mind, you know, the Face Your Dragon platform and message is really about understanding Joseph Campbell's quote that the cave you fear to enter holds the treasure you seek. Yeah. So what? Right. So what we're most resisting and most afraid of in ourselves and others, however it shows up, is the very thing that'll set us free. Yeah. So how yeah. do we both face that dragon and learn to ride it? It's really not. I don't believe it's about slaying the dragon. I really think it's about understanding the shadow and using the energy that's in the darkness as well in a positive way. Yeah. I mean, you cannot slay a dragon. You uh, <laughs> you, you slay a dragon. You give it power. You slay a dragon, it may uh, go stealth for right. a while. It may retreat into a cave for a while, but it will gather power and it will come for you. So I don't say that in a way to double down on anybody's fear story, only to say that you don't slay anything by denying it or trying to uh, remove it. Where's it going to go to? We're all connected. <laughs> it's all just consciousness. Where are you going to put it? Right. So you want to bring light to a dragon. You want to go into the dragon's cave and turn on the light. The dragon is a behavior. It is an energy that is developed by us, created by us, fed by us as a strategic, adaptive response to uh, some trauma in life, to some experience in life. Whether it starts small, as we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, starts very small as a baby. It looks small, but believe me, as a baby, that's a big deal, abandonment of love. Starts small, and then we keep building for it. And the moment we have an early experience of it, and the cognitive aspect of ourselves, that prefrontal cortex starts to come online, that part is scanning for it 24-7 and is always looking to reinforce its understanding of the world. And so its understanding of the world is, here's a scary dragon. I can lose love in this way. And so it is constantly uh, reinforcing that by scanning for moments where it might lose love. And pretty soon you have so much energy uh, developed around something that it's a dragon. Mm. And it becomes understood. Mm. And, uh, and then we no longer have to fear it. But it doesn't necessarily have to lose all its energy. It can still live there. We just understand it, and it lives in a corner, and it doesn't drive us. Well, it's funny. It's not, as soon as we accept it, living in the corner, it, it just almost dissipates. Like, oh, I'm not, I'm not ignoring or deflecting this anymore. Yeah, there it yeah. is. Yeah. yeah, and you give it a different job. Right. Well, I like to say using the fear or leveraging the fear. How do we, you know, we've got this amazing pharmacy in our head. Yeah. And we can tap into adrenaline, you know, as Miguel Ruiz said in the first podcast, adrenalina. Yeah. <laughs> it was great. Yeah, the adrenalina. Um, the adrenalina. So we get to use the adrenaline, use the dopamine, use all of it, the, the serotonin, the benefrin, all of it. I mean, there's an opportunity to tap into it and accessing our chemicals through the dragon by understanding it and dancing with it and riding it ultimately. I mean, it's really about learning to ride the energy and using it. You know, if you remember in the movie Avatar, eventually he got to the point where he became Trakmakto or what? I forgot, forgot the yeah. exact name. And, and he rode the big orange red dragon back and that was the biggest, scariest dragon out there. And it was the power they needed. Yeah. I just slipped out of my mind. There is that fear 
place in our, the amygdala in our brain. Yep. So the amygdala is not responsive to the prefrontal cortex. So there is no amount of thinking, processing, exercises. It is not responsive to it. (laughs) Right. Then it is not even responsive to the limbic brain, which itself is not responsive to the executive brain. The limbic brain is the second to develop brain, the one that creates connection and community and emotion and play. And it is not responsive to logic or reason also. And anybody that doubts that has only, have you ever been in a relationship that doesn't work? And you wonder, why do I keep going back? Yeah, right. No amount. There is no amount of discussion or logic (laughs) or reason that connects to the limbic brain. They are not even connected. There are no straight connections from the limbic brain to the executive brain, to the neocortex. And there are no connections from the amygdala to these brains either, because it functions, it's, you know, the amygdala is the original reptilian, part of the original reptilian fight or flight. There's no connection. And so what happens is the adrenaline and this chemical dump that happens when the amygdala is stimulated, it's gonna be stimulated, but it's never gonna be stimulated in such a way (laughs) that the limbic brain, which is about play and attunement, is going to latch onto. Right. Nor is it ever, ever going to be stimulated in such a way that the prefrontal cortex is going to be able to latch onto. It can tell us a great story yeah. about how it is, but really the whole body and the whole subconscious is freaking out when the amygdala is stimulated. But what we can come to understand is that the amygdala is responding to a fight or flight stimulus. The reptilian brain is responding to a primordial, a primal stimulus, and that what is going on right now is not what the amygdala is responding to, is not happening now. It just looks like to the amygdala. What's happening now looks like a fight or flight response. So what we can say to ourselves is, this uh, dragon that I'm fighting is not about now. This is an old dragon and not about now. It's amazing how we just flash back to some thing in our past, that yeah. neural pathway fires off again, and then whoever we're speaking with or speaking to us, whatever, immediately triggers off that neural pathway, and we're back, you know. We're back we're, on. Yep. You know, neural maps are memory. They are memory. Uh, neural maps are karma. There's no difference. That's what they are. Interesting. And so karma keeps coming back because the neural maps are not uh, redrawn. Memories are not with redrawn. However, when we respond to that differently, when we feel the dragon awaken, we go, wait a minute, is this really about now? No, it's not. I'm haunted by an old dragon. This is not about now. At that moment, I can love that dragon. I can say, I understand why you are active right now, but this is not about now. There is nothing to fear now. I can meet this challenge as an adult, male, as an adult, female. I I can meet this challenge. And I understand why you're so activated. I love you. I hear you. I see you. I will always be with you. Even after we are dead, I will be with you. I will take care of you. 
I will never leave you, that begins to have effect on those old neural maps. It begins to chill out the dragon. And it starts to draw new neural maps. And as you begin to feed new neural connections, new neural maps are formed. And at the same time as new neural maps are formed through diminished use, the old axons and dendrites that are kept linked by virtue of how we direct energy, because less energy is going through them, eventually those connections wear thin and finally they break off. And when they break off, we lose the memory altogether. Not only do we lose the memory, it never happened. Hmm. And so the memory is gone, the karma is over. You don't release karma any other way except feeding energy to new neural maps. Uh, that's, that's such and a... those neural maps, <laughs> they exist whether you're in the body or you're not in the body. There are, you know, the more powerful neural maps aren't even drawn on the brain. They're energetic. Wow. I've never heard karma explained from sort of a quantum physics neuroscience perspective, and that makes so much sense to me. We reactivate it. The thought vibration then vibrates back out into the field, and then we create the karma. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, well, create it. we create it because it's familiar to us. Interesting. Even when we, even we, we don't like it and we rail against it, but the very railing against it, the very not liking of it strengthens it because it is feeding the same neural maps. The response to it is to understand it and to tend to it and to love it. It's brilliant, Barnett. It's always to love it. You try and kill a dragon, that dragon owns you. It, it's you gotcha. love dragon, it lives in the corner. You have to feed it. You got to bring it a meal every day, throw it a rabbit, scratch it behind the ears. You don't love your dragon, it's running you. Mm. Barnett, this has been so fascinating, and I trust that the dragon tribe is getting massive, massive value and benefit from this conversation. So what are you up to now, and how do people find you? What are you, what are you working on? I know Milton's Secret's kind of your, your latest project. What's going on for you? Well, Milton's Secret's out, and now available um, Amazon Direct and iTunes and everywhere else that you scan or view or stream or whatever. So I hope people will check that out. If you want to see a movie about dragons, that's it. And I'm writing a new film and teaching. I'll be teaching this week at Esalen, a little late for our listeners, but maybe next time. Getting ready to go up Friday and teach about embodied creativity. Beautiful. And where, where do they find you, Barnett? What's your website? Uh, com. Very good, sir. Any final thoughts as to... You know, your body of work is one that I'm just so impressed with and, and live through and allow it to sort of change my life and change others by recommending it to others. You know, any final thoughts as we wrap our talk today? Be brave. Yeah. Be brave. Nobody uh, gets away with making friends with dragons mm. unless they have courage. It takes a lot of heart and a lot of courage to uh, face what uh, we don't want to face in ourselves. You know, that's the dragon. That's it. And face it. And you know what? The worry about facing it, which is head trip worry. Yes. The worry is certainly uh, much more traumatic and much scarier than actually facing it. It's amazing that couple seconds of courage to step in and just get real or authentic with what's going on. It seems to dissipate a lot. So I'm with you there. Yeah. Awesome, yeah. brother. 
So it's so great to be with you today, buddy. Yeah, likewise. Love, love it, even when we have an audience. I love it. Yeah, I love it. I'm just so grateful to have you, Barnett. And I, again, I trust everybody else's as well and excited to get this out to the world for everybody to share. So thanks for your time, my friend. I want to thank our guests for sharing their hearts and brilliance with us. Thank you, Barnett Bain. And thank you, Robin Williams. Rest in peace, sweet Robin. We're so grateful for your contribution to the world. You can find out more about Barnett at barnettbain.com. And as we dive deeper into facing your dragon, I want to offer the opportunity for you to discover the number one hidden fear stopping you from earning what you're worth. Be sure to take the one-minute quiz at couragequiz.com. And if there's something here I mentioned that you want to review again, keep in mind we keep all the notes for you, including links to everything we talked about today. You can find the show notes for this episode at faceyourdragon.com forward slash episode 004. And finally, I would like to invite you to subscribe and leave a five-star review for the Face Your Dragon podcast by visiting faceyourdragon.com forward slash subscribe. Be sure to share this episode with your tribe on social media if it was useful for you. We'd love that. And join our conversation in the Face Your Dragon Facebook group as we talk more about your greatest fears being the very thing that will set you free. Tune in to episode five because I'll be talking with my dear friend, the amazing Satyan Raja with Warrior Sage. He's pretty much the baddest dude I know. We discuss the state of the world and how fear runs you and keeps you focused on self-preservation instead of your calling and how net profit is the key but only adding to it by avoiding the dark side of massive action. This incredible being and many more on the Face Your Dragon podcast. See you on the next show. And remember, when you face your dragon and take the leap, you will break free.